We talk with geological engineer Pamela Rogalski in this episode of the Engineering Commons about acquiring and leveraging social license to enact change in organizations and communities. Pamela also shares with us the role of a geological engineer and explains to us what kind of tools are used to survey the world below our feet. We experienced a few audio glitches during the course of this interview, so please bear with the occasional moments of unintelligible conversation. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 60, Social License, July 24th, 2014. So, Adam, is it difficult to enact change within your organization? Uh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. Usually it's difficult to, to keep moving, let alone change things. Um, what, what do you mean it's difficult to keep moving? The, the, the level of bureaucracy creates a, uh, um, a certain degree of challenge uh, just to keep things moving forward, um, uh, keep the status quo, let alone uh, enact change. Oh, yeah. Well, th that's kind of what bureaucracies are good at, right? You know, make sure that nothing changes, that everything is done exactly the way it's always been done. Yeah, yeah. And they tend to be very effective at that. <laughs> well, and, and the bigger the bureaucracy, the better they are at it. Absolutely. And the government tends to be uh, some of the best bureaucracy out there. Well, they've got a lot of practice. <laughs> that they do. Well, and, and so uh, – you know, I think as engineers, sometimes we look at the situation and we go, well, this is not optimal. You know, we, we sometimes we're a little blind to the politics or the financial issues going on, the marketing issues. We don't care so much. We look at the performance issues and we go, there is a better way to do this. And we're amazed that, uh, change doesn't happen. And, uh, since we, we have within our, our souls, within our beings, because we're engineers, we like to see things perform well. Uh, a desire to for things to change and to get better and for that performance to pick up. Uh, we want things to uh, to change. We want to affect the bureaucracy. We want to improve the system. But uh, sometimes we just don't know how to do that. And so this evening, we're going to talk with someone who will uh, who makes an effort to try and make a change within big organizations and big bureaucracies. And we hope to learn a few lessons about how we can uh, start our own little revolution within the, within an organization. And so to do that, uh, our guest for this episode is Pamela Rogalski. Uh, she's a licensed professional engineer from Canada who has worked as a manager, strategist, educator, negotiator, and executive level advisor for geotechnical engineering and power generation firms in her home province of British Columbia. In addition to her current duties as a negotiations and procurement engineer for Coho Power Corporation, she is co-founder and CEO of the Engineering Leadership Council, a nonprofit organization that works with technical professionals to advise companies and communities in addressing social and environmental concerns as they implement infrastructure projects within Canada. Pamela, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you for having me on the show to speak with you, Jeff. Well, we're so delighted that you could uh, join us and uh, spend a few minutes giving us the wisdom of your, your experience working with big organizations. Well, I don't know about wisdom, but hopefully we've learned a few things <laughs> along the way uh, that can apply to, to more than one company for sure. <laughs> right. Well, now one of the one of the things we often ask our guests is, as we start out our conversation is how they got interested in uh, engineering. But I note from your uh, uh, resume that you started out with a degree in 
English. Is that right? Uh, I, I actually started in my engineering degree, and uh, I was a first-year university student and eating lunch in the cafeteria, as first-year students do. And I kept hearing the English uh, students talking about topics that absolutely fascinated me, even as an engineer. Um, mm -hmm. I know that, that some people out there might not believe that an engineer was fascinated by English conversations. And uh, I couldn't believe that I was going to uh, leave university without without learning a lot about the social context and history um, of the world. And I actually added doing an English degree at the same time as doing an engineering degree. That's ambitious. Wow, you are a glutton for punishment. That is an accurate statement. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did, how did that go? Was the... Uh, was it just a matter of trying to balance the two or was there any kind of like mental conflict in trying to keep straight the, the view of the world that would be appropriate for your, your, uh, your English classes and those that be appropriate for engineering classes? You know, I actually found them really complimentary, um, both in that it's really easy after sitting down and doing, say, a bunch of programming or physics homework to sit down and uh, to do, you know, read Milton or something like that. Um, and, uh, I don't think that the view of society that engineering has, that innovation can be damaging and can be great, is really different than the view of innovation that we see in literature and the arts. Uh, it's just a, a different perspective on the same thing. Mm -hmm. And And do you think that, uh, having the English degree has affected your, you know, the way you approach engineering? Absolutely. I think what I've learned, what I did learn about social context and about understanding, you know, through often through characters, um, what different innovations have on society and for how many hundreds of years we've been talking about how will this invention affect our community? Um, and how do we tell the stories around what, what different innovations do to us and do to the way we relate? To each other and communicate with each other. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, inventions often follow predictable or at least re repeating narratives in our society? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Is there a specific narrative that that you've thought through that you would sort of posit that it might follow? I don't know. Uh, I, I think of continuing stories of fear and then, well, maybe excitement, then fear, and then boredom. Interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe uh, Thomas Hardy and uh, the first mechanical threshers. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, where that was really going from from um, interest to fear and, and, you know, being compared to, to Hades and hell. And now I don't think too much of anyone would get too excited. Boredom might be an accurate way to describe how we think about threshers now. Or the uh, steam drill. Sure. Uh, you know, being threatened by innovation. It's kind of a reoccurring theme in, in engineering. It's an interesting idea. I mean, some sometimes we certainly embrace things full on. Um, I wonder if, if you look for it, if there's a whole multitude of reactions among society. I wonder how easy it is to to actually bring a universal reaction out of the multitude of, of people over time. Yeah, it sounds like there's a dissertation in this conversation. Indeed. <laughs> Agreed. 
So you finished up your English degree and you finished up your engineering degree and your engineering degree was in what? It was in geophysics engineering, which is the study of the subsurface of the year of the earth, basically using waves. Okay. So when you say using waves, that's uh, uh, sampling with, I mean, using sonic waves or that kind of thing? Either electromagnetic or sonic. Yes. Okay. Would you say your, your uh, discipline is, is it? geophysical engineering? Is it geological engineering? Is it geotechnical engineering? I often say my education is in geophysics engineering. I've practiced geophysics geotechnical engineering, and and my career has really evolved into being more of a managing um, role within engineering. Right. And, and so is, is there a distinction to be made between geophysical, geotechnical, geological engineering? Uh, geophysics and geotechnical are subsets of geological engineering. I think how they're discussed okay. actually might be a little bit different in the U.S. and in Canada. Geotechnical engineering is the um, more like the structural study of the subsurface of the Earth, uh, of soils mm -hmm. and of rocks, um, of the real mechanics of them, whereas geophysics engineering is using waves to image what rocks, soils, etc. are there. Probably contaminants, oil, gold are things people are looking for underground a lot, diamonds. Right. So would somebody graduate with a geological engineering or say a geophysical or geotechnical engineering degree? It varies a little bit from university to university exactly how those are managed and even to an individual's, pro an individual's program. Okay, so if you were a graduating geological engineer, um, you know, since at least as an electrical engineer, I don't get a lot of exposure to this. Maybe Adam has more. Um, what would your responsibilities be if you, you know, were a recent undergrad? Sure. So if you um, graduated with a specialty in geophysics within geological engineering, you would most likely be um, maybe doing overseas or perhaps uh, somewhere where there's large oil fields. Um, imaging where there's oil or maybe contaminants underground, um, doing field mm -hmm. work uh, that, that then samples a lot of data, brings it back to the office, does some digital signal processing, um, and uh, creates an image of what is underground and then creates a report out of that to present to your clients um, where their oil is, where their contaminants are, um, maybe where their bedrock is. Uh, for a civil mm -hmm. project, things like that. And if you're a geotechnical engineer, you might be designing foundations um, or maybe roadways over some, some difficult terrain, uh, perhaps uh, designing mine shafts and reinforcements uh, in a way that they don't collapse, things like that. Hmm. So I have an idea if, if uh, you know, I'm dealing with an electrical engineer, I can imagine they're dealing with oscilloscopes and soldering irons and mechanical engineers you know, depending on what their field is, maybe dealing with, with uh, mechanical beams or, or, you know, thermal, you know, uh, objects. But I haven't really haven't a clue when you talk about doing sensing of, of these, uh, of these objects underneath the ground. What, what do these tools look like? I have just not a clue. There's a whole suite of different tools that work to different depths um, from ones that go you know, very deep into imaging uh, the actual sort of what the, the globe is made of at what depth uh, to some mm -hmm. that only might go a foot or two under the ground. So what those look like really vary. 
but usually it involves a, a lot of, for the electromagnetic uh, ones, it involves a lot of, of electrical cabling that you're running often through the bush in straight lines. And, um, okay. and then some, uh, some sort of a, a box at each end. And, uh, and usually a few laptops uh, laid out collecting all of the, the data um, from all of the survey. Is it, is it fair to say that, and I, and I know that we gained a lot of information about what we know about, say, the upper mantle all the way down to the core through uh, nuclear testing. Are there techniques still to this date that are, can get that kind of depth and that kind of accuracy? Can you get that with conventional explosives or other types of imaging? You know, imaging the deep earth isn't my area of expertise, but definitely um, I can see how a nuclear explosion would be a fantastic seismic source. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Pamela, you were uh, in school, graduated with this degree in, uh, uh, it was a geophysical engineering. Did I get yes, that right? Yes, that's correct. That's yeah. what your degree is yeah. in? Okay, geophysical engineering. But uh, while you were still in school, you joined a group uh, called Engineers Without Borders. What was it about that organization that drew your attention? Engineers Without Borders is a group of mostly university students, um, uh, some professionals as well um, in Canada, and uh, really understanding how engineers contribute can contribute to a better world. For Engineers Without Borders Canada, the, the main focus is on um, sub-Saharan Africa. And, and I think a group that was really exploring what we can do to leverage and build our privilege into a better world for a lot of different people is, is a, a really exciting place to be. Cool. And, and is that uh, is that a worldwide organization? Is that limited just to Canada? Engineers Without Borders is a worldwide organization, and then there's Engineers Without Borders Canada, Engineers Without Borders USA, um, etc. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it uh, you had mentioned that uh, you had this degree in geophysical engineering. You go out and uh, you do some field work, and you gave us an idea of. Uh, some of the equipment you might use. So a, a typical thing is to do a geophysical survey. So can you give us an idea of what what is what a survey is? What is it the people that ha- that pay the the money to have you do this? What what kind of information do they want back? Sure, um, I'll give an example. Uh, I was up in a mine in Nunavut, up which is in uh, very northern Canada, um, doing an overwater survey. So in this case, we're we're um, dragging the equipment around behind uh, a small boat in the water. Um, and what we were imaging there is the boundary between uh, gravel and bedrock. And what the mine was looking for is mapping how and where um, any uh, contaminants or um, other concerns from the mine, which was not yet developed, uh, would flow. Mm-hmm. with groundwater once the mine was developed. So they, they wanted a really sort of large 3D image of where gravel turned to bedrock. Um, and then they, they would bring mm-hmm. in um, groundwater specialists to map where the flow groundwater flow would be based on that image that we created. Okay. Yeah. And is, that, is groundwater flow typically, does that fall into the civil engineering realm? Um, I think it's divided again in different places, but either civil or geological, yes, yeah. Okay. Maybe both, okay. actually. 
Adam, do you have any experience with groundwater flow? Uh, yeah, at least at, at my university, we did um, actually both geotechnical and uh, groundwater were part of our civil engineering program mm-hmm. um, with a couple required courses and some other options. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd say it is a civil engineering problem, one of the, the many big, big umbrellas of civil engineering. Right. Water is something that, that groundwater is something that affects um, almost all of the other disciplines, I think, now. But at least to, to me as a mechanical engineer, it's one of those things that's, you know, out of sight, out of mind, you know, unless it's been raining heavily for four days and, and the water's starting to, you know, creep up towards my deck in the backyard. It's something I never have to worry about. You know, somebody else is taking care of, you know, routing that water to uh, to the right location. But certainly if if it's not done correctly and and uh, people are stranded or people are flooded, that's a that's a serious issue, and so uh, it's one of those things that, at least for me, is is normally out of mind. Right, and and underground water, um, for example, if your neighbors have some contaminants in their lot, whether or not it's seeping over into yours, might not even uh, might not even be something you would think about if you can't see it. Yeah, until it becomes a problem. Yes. And and so, are there any uh, are there any new technologies in this sort of uh, geophysics survey area i mean is there any exciting things where you go wow we can we can we can now tell things that we can never tell before absolutely i've i've been out of sort of uh the cutting edge of of geophysics engineering and in management of engineering for some years now but um i think every year especially with uh advances in programming and digital signal processing what it's possible to image and the quality uh, it is to image those those things in 3D um, is improving rapidly every year. Okay, and, and do you think that's it, is it a combination of the sensor precision, or is it mostly the the algorithms? Just you know, we can apply more software due to Moore's law. You know, exponentially more processing power comes along every year. Or I'm guessing it's a combination of both. Yeah, I'm going to guess that it varies uh, across the different geophysics. I mean, whether it's electromagnetic or whether it's seismic and the details of each specific instrument. But really where I've Mm -hmm. seen massive improvements um, is to go from picking first wave arrivals by hand and and drawing, you know, ruler lines to get slopes um, to Mm -hmm. the processing of massive 3D data sets resulting in in well-mapped um, 3D maps is is a huge difference than hand picked inferences. Right. Yeah. You're now in uh, kind of a management track. When did you make that transition? You know, I think it happened organically. I um, was in the field doing geotechnical engineering uh, with a, a consulting company after I graduated from university, and uh, what I learned on site was that even though it was really a very interesting technical project uh, that, you know, some papers were published out of and some new methods were derived out of, where the low-hanging fruit for a better project was, was in the management and communications of that project. Mm -hmm. And I think so often in engineering and sometimes as engineers, um, we're looking so hard for technical improvements and we've been looking so hard for them for so long that in a lot of instances, we've got the technical part of how to do projects pretty well 
nailed down and it's in the communication and management of how we do projects uh, that there's room for just massive improvements. Um, and I think it was that opportunity, that low-lying fruit for huge improvements in what we actually deliver uh, that shifted my own focus within engineering from, from you know, the most technical pro- problems I could possibly find into the management and leadership of engineering and how we're doing that. And I was kind of struck by the word you used there. You, you talked about what communicating what we deliver, and I was wondering whether that was in terms of a better understanding what the customer needed and wanted and delivering the right product or better explaining what we were delivering as engineers. Do we need an or, or can we just put an and in that sentence? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Carmen in the last episode said I'd like to ask a lot of chicken and egg questions, and I guess that's another one. <laughs> I will have the chicken and the egg, please. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't know whether your, your sense of, of the power of getting into this communications and management area was uh, that engineers could be more effective in delivering what was needed or in that better explaining what the engineers had to offer. Right. Um, I, think, I think what I, I saw at first, what really opened the door to me on site at first is that um, the, the projects are often held back from delivering what is technically possible through political issues, through we need to meet this timeline before an election. We need to meet this, you know, seemingly from a technical perspective, arbitrary uh, delivery date. And, And so what I first saw was just a tremendous opportunity to improve that um, conversation and decision making to actually deliver what was technically possible um, through better ex- through better defining the opportunity we had to deliver it, the timelines, etc., that we have to deliver projects. Mm-hmm. And I've really and then I've expanded that understanding for myself that maybe it's not just us explaining what we can do and what we should do, but spending an awful lot of time listening to what communities want us to do and need us to do in the first place. And then Mm -hmm. using the power of innovation and design um, and communication uh, to ensure that we are delivering that. Mm -hmm. So my first thought is like when we talk about curing cancer, and those that are in the know, my, I don't know much about medicine, but, you know, they talk about, well, we'll never really cure cancer because there are so many different types of cancer. You know, there's, we can't just, you know, we use a single term to sort of abstract the entire, uh, the realm of these diseases or these, these matters. But I'm wondering whether in, in your role as a manager and trying to handle these communications, whether you have noticed any sort of overarching issues where, Managers don't, you know, management, I'll, I'll use the blanket term, unfortunately, you know, generic management, those in charge don't understand what the engineers want to contribute or are able to contribute. Is there some, you know, some, some common misunderstanding? And from the engineering side, is there a common misunderstanding from, from the engineers as to what management is trying to achieve, what organizations are trying to accomplish? Absolutely. I mean, what engineer hasn't been on a project and felt like I am not understood? And if I was understood, I would surely be given all of the budget that I and time that I need. 
<laughs> exactly. Um, and and large pro- large projects and large organizations need to stay aligned and need to stay, you know, to to head in a direction together. And um, when engineers can understand what that is and support that, and conversely, when they can communicate, here's how what we're doing supports that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that there is a lot more jumping into the term social license uh, given to engineering projects and to engineering within organizations to to deliver what they know how to deliver, what we know how to deliver. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 and so is that a is that a skill that communication skill? We'll 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 let the management people talk to themselves. They've got Harvard Business Review and other places they can go for this knowledge of how to communicate better. Uh, for for the engineers in our audience, how might they go about becoming better at at communicating what they have to offer? You know, if if I were to um, sort of. Uh, recommend one place where communication for engineering can have a dramatic change. It's getting engaged with the procurement conversation. Procurement is the nexus where management approves different phases of projects, different budgets released to different consultants and contractors for projects. It's where specifications get written and approved um, what risks are going to be managed. It's, it's really a decision-making nexus between mm-hmm. uh, management and between engineering projects. And, and it's what drew me there. And I think it's easy to think contracts are all about, you know, wordy terms and conditions, but they're right. really about, uh, which may be true in, in some instances, but cr- procurement is where decisions get made on engineering projects. It's where budgets get signed off on and allocated. And I, I think it's really important that engineers engage more and more meaningfully in the procurement conversation. Hmm. Interesting. So the engineer doesn't begin until the checks are written. Or until the specifications are, are written about what, what checks will be written for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll hopefully get a little deeper into how engineers can have an effect in their organization, but I kind of got off track here. I, to get back to uh, to your work history, you had moved on at some point to uh, BC Hydro, which is a, a fairly major electric distributor in British Columbia. It's a little bit different in Canada. BC Hydro is a provincial crown corporation, and it has the mandate to generate, purchase, distribute, and sell electricity within British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Does that mean it's a state-owned company? Uh, I'm not sure if that's the exact right technical legal term. I know Crown Corporation is, um, but something very, very close to state-owned would be right, yes. Okay. So, I mean, you can't buy it on an exchange, correct? Correct, yes. Okay. And uh, like additional income over a certain point goes back to the province and things like that. Hmm. And and so the uh, the transition that you made from the the technical realm to the management realm, you were you said you were drawn to it. Was it? Did you find it at all difficult? Was it a natural transition? Um, I did a lot of reading. Uh, I took a lot of courses. You know, I, I think no matter what we do as engineers, we are driven to learn throughout our careers. I know for me, it's part of what keeps me interested. Um, mm-hmm. 
And, uh, and I think just looping back the social context I had from an arts degree was important, uh, to, to speak the man, to speak the, the language of, of what organizational priorities are, etc. But I did also get a subscription to Harvard Business Review and start reading that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so how long did you work with uh, BC Hydro? Uh, I think it was three years that I was there. Okay. Something like that. So, yeah. And was that, uh, I'm guessing, I don't know, was that the largest uh, organization you had worked with up to that point? Absolutely. I think at the time they employed 7,000 engineers. Yeah. Oh, wow. How big was the larger organization? Uh, I'm not sure right off the top of my head, but it's it, uh, it's a big organization for sure. Oh, God. So this gave you a chance uh, from early in your career to this point, you've worked for very small organizations, I think, uh, to very big organizations. Can you give a, a quick description of the difference between, you know, organizations of different sizes? You know, I think, um, I think at, at the very small sort of um, even down to like one, one uh, operator hiring me as a co-op student organizations up up to about 10 people um there was very much a sense of uh being the underdog and always needing to prove and innovate faster and um harder than anyone else and there was a really exciting and wonderful drive to move innovation forward really, really rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that innovation wasn't valued at the larger organization, but there's more concerns on the table than just innovation. Um, you start to really think about social license to operate, um, which just isn't, I mean, no one is going to, to be upset with a one person's organizations innovation in in you know one small technique or something like that but a larger organization it's where is the organization going as a whole you know there's just uh there's a lot more factors that that come in in any larger organization so the concept of social license is a new one to me how would you define it um so social license isn't, of course, a, a license that's put on paper. Mm-hmm. Social license is the goodwill of a community mm. to have an organization or a project operate. So, a, you know, a very, very basic metric would be if you're seeing an, a lot of protests, you're lacking, you're severely lacking social license. And I suppose since a lot of, you know, the civil and the geotechnical requires popular consent in order to operate. Sure. That's very, that's very important. Absolutely. I think popular consent is a great way to describe social license. Okay. So after your three years at uh, BC Hydro, uh, you decide that you're going to move on to other things. And uh, at that time, at about the end of 2011, uh, you co-founded the Engineering Leadership Council. Could you tell us a little bit about this organization? Sure. BC Hydro treated me very well, and uh, it certainly wasn't a choice to to leave BC Hydro so much as to grow the Engineering Leadership Council by working on it uh, something close to full-time, if not Mm -hmm. full-time. And the Engineering Leadership Council is a community of uh, 
of professionals, a community of people that work on engineering projects. So engineers, construction managers, biologists, etc., that enable better social impact with their projects. So they enable solutions for communities coming out of engineering projects. Okay. And and so what what were the events that, you know, this sort of must have been bubbling in the back of your mind somewhere uh, before you woke up one morning and said, I'm going to start this new organization? Sure. I, I think the, the huge factors that um, caused me to, to want to lead this full time were really, there was two of them. One, the time is right. There is a huge business case. There is a huge unleveraged business case for better social impacts. Taking the broad view, engineering comes from a military history. And when engineering was first done, it was really done in a military context. And the goal was to get the project done. And if some people died in the process of doing a project, that was just considered, you know, an unfortunate and terrible side effect, one that that was just going to happen. There was just going to be some deaths in engineering projects. Um, and, uh, and that was something that really changed, you know, safety became a key essential requirement to how engineering is defined. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became incorporated into the practice and safety by design and all of those things. Right. And it was considered, well, there's going to be some environmental damage with the project. I mean, that's just going to happen. And then environmental sustainability was incorporated to be a core tenant of engineering design and something that projects need to deliver. Um, I remember growing up, uh, I lived on a lake and um, the gravel road behind our, our house uh, always had uh, used oil spread over it in the winter and sorry, in the summer to keep the dust down. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I mean, that's, a, that's something that would never happen now. Because sustainability just needs to be a part of our, our infrastructure. And I think along those lines, the time for social impact has arrived and social impact is increasingly becoming a requirement of engineering projects. And for, so, for those of us who graduated from university before that was a requirement, we are learning as professionals how to include social impact in design, how to measure it, um, how to listen to communities and how to understand what they need, how to write the business cases for that and how to include it in design. Um, so it's a huge emer- emerging area of practice for engineering. Nonetheless, it seems to me like a pretty brave step to say, I'm going to leave my full-time job into this relatively unproven realm where I believe that I can make a difference. Well, I think maybe the I can make a difference is the big second factor. And it wasn't just I, it was we. A tremendously talented, knowledgeable, and hardworking group of people was gathering around this idea and I never would have left a fantastic full-time role <laughs> to do this on my own. And anything the Engineering Leadership Council uh, has done is certainly not something I alone have done. And it doesn't come only out of my expertise. It's, uh, you know, just a fantastic board and very talented and hardworking volunteers. 
um, contributing to the organization. And if it weren't for that group of people gathering that really looked like this, this group of people at this time isn't going to happen twice in a lifetime. Right. And, and maybe I need to use some of the, the privilege that I have in my life uh, to have an engineering education um, to do something to build a better world when that, yeah. that opportunity comes and knocks on the door. Yes, all, all true. Nonetheless, I, I still think a brave move. <laughs> it certainly was taking on a life of more risk, that's for sure. I will, I will, uh, there's no two ways about that. Yeah. And, and and so what do what does one do when one wakes up the first morning and you go okay I am now going to help co-found this organization I may have the help of others but uh, what what is your thought that first morning when you sit down and you go okay I I'm now off on a new adventure what do I do first Right uh well I think the the biggest thing that we needed were we needed to have really effective programs that would help companies make change and lead uh, positive community impacts. If companies couldn't implement the changes or if the the impacts they were having weren't really great for communities, then there's no point in the whole exercise. Right. So we, we get a huge of the systemic change that was possible, the business cases that existed for engineers, and we actually took that um, to a series of, of dialogues across Canada with engineering executives, construction managers, um, people who had had tremendous successes and failures in social impact and design work and asked, you know, what do you think of this ability? What do you think of the opportunity to make change here? Where do you think we can make the biggest differences to communities? And we spent a whole year doing that. And it's really out of that year of checking our um, map as to how we can uh, create change, checking our theory of change um, with industry, uh, I would attribute the success of our programs to that. Was it easy to get buy-in in private industry? Um, I think yes and no. This is um, This is a emerging area mm-hmm. um so it's it's new for industry to have this responsibility but it's also really well recognized and in most cases for large organizations social license to operate is on the big risks that the board is looking at and to be honest for most people that work in the field that you know work in communities in one way or another in their engineering projects, whether it's construction managers or, or people that are out doing investigations on sites or things like that, um, it doesn't feel good to impact communities in a negative way. They want to, we want to be acting in line with our values. And so I think there, there's already a strong pull at an executive level to manage the risk of social license to operate. And that's where the business case comes from. And there's also a huge risk uh, on a technical professional level to act in line with our values. I mean, and it should be pointed out, I mean, if you don't have the social license to operate, the project can very easily be killed. I'm, I'm, I keep thinking Yucca Mountain as you're, t- as you're talking about that. Words. You know, we spent, the U.S. spent billions prepping this site and 
the local state and community finally said no way. And it didn't matter that the federal government spent billions. Absolutely. And there's so many huge projects and small projects um, that failed due to social license to operate. I, I think especially within civil infrastructure and within resource extraction. Um, it's, it's really heavily on people's radars right now. And there's a huge business case for it. And that is actually specifically why the Engineering Leadership Council uh, works in those two industries is because of the huge opportunities to impact communities better and the strong business case for it. That's very cool. And, and so do the, these the, the large organizations see this business case? I, because it seems to me there's, you know, if, if, I, um, if I go to the stereotypical view of, you know, business owners as those who want to maximize profit and could care less about any other social uh, effects, and you've got the community which cares only about the social effects and not so much about the profits, it, it looks to me like you've got a head-on conflict there of, of values and intents and direction. And I'm just wondering how one blends those so that that both parties see that there's a, a benefit to be done by cooperating. You know, I, I think when you have money versus social impact, when you have them at loggerheads with each other, uh, it's very difficult for social impact to win um, that fight. I, I certainly wouldn't want to get into any kind of a business fight where I was on the opposite side than the dollar signs. So I think when they're posited as being against each other and that if you want to be altruistic, you can spend money, but you don't have to. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's a difficult conversation to have and it's very difficult to make any change or, or have any progress. Um, but where you can align what a community values with the business case for um, a project going ahead, then it's very easy to actually align a strong economic business case with meeting community values. So, so can you give me an example? So my thought is that, that typically it's uh, my sense is, and again, I don't know much about this area is that communities uh, get into this, not in my backyard mode, you know, well, you can put it somewhere else, but, you know, not in my community. And so it's not a matter of, well, I'm willing to have a certain amount of mining happen in our area. It's you can do all the mining you want, but go somewhere else to do it. For sure. And and I think um, when, uh, when projects offer, you know, well, there's a little bit of money on the table um, for you if you let our project go ahead. That can definitely turn into a place where the stronger you can yell that you don't want it there, the more you can your community can negotiate for more funding. Um, so you've mm -hmm. created an adversarial uh, relationship. Um, but what you also see happen on other projects is communities actually define before any mining or other project get there, what their vision is for their community, what their plan is for their community, where they want mm -hmm. to go. And um, with that uh, vision and plan, um, they then welcome and seek projects as partners um, where there's actually a really strong community pull for those projects. So community capacity building to um, plan, to, to vision and plan community plans is really important. And then 
from industry perspective, seeking communities that have defined those plans and partnering with them instead of to, to make those plans happen through industry rather than going loggerheads uh, with someone who doesn't want a project with a community that doesn't want a project is a much more proactive way of seeking a project um, that is going to get approval and strong approval from a community because it's helping a community do what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. So, so it makes me wonder, so are communities actively going out and saying, we need to know what our, you know, what our mineral, I, I don't have, know the right terminology, but our, you know, our, our mineral and our oil and our whatever uh, treasure, so to speak, are in our community before we negotiate with these big companies? Or is it always the big companies coming in and taking these surveys and coming to the community and saying, we know that you have these, these uh, value minerals and, and resources and we want it? Usually you see it happening um, as a partnership or from the company. So usually the, the community um, responsibility and contribution to the discussion is what their vision and plan is for their community and then looking for projects that can help enable that. Um, but I think the, the technical aspect, which actually goes back to often to geophysics or, or maybe to other methodologies of where a project is going to go, is really a deeply technical question that needs to be um, led by technical professionals in partnership with communities. And I think that's where engineering can grow to contribute to communities using that technical strength that we have already. Okay. And, and so how, where does the, in this, in this negotiation, this conversation between community and organ, you know, business organization, where does how does the engineering leadership council get involved and what role does it take in this conversation great question right now we work with individuals and organizations to change their practices and policies for social and to some degree environmental sustainability um so when an engineering organization says, I, I want to work on projects where I have social license to operate, how do I make that happen? The Engineering Leadership Council works with them to, uh, to evaluate what their policies and practices are and to um, identify what best practices they're able to um, implement in their organization to do, to do the best of what's out there from a technical perspective from a community perspective and from a business case perspective to have better social license to operate. We are also right now um, seeking funding to start uh, in-person communities of practice um, in, in a variety of different locations. So then those best practices uh, can enable personal leadership and, and change as well. Okay. So, so is your organization, I, I'm sorry, is, I'm saying it as though it were your organization. I know it's not, it doesn't belong to you. You, you helped found it, but it's not your organization. So the, uh, the in, engineering leadership council. So are your technical professionals actually going into the organization and saying, Hey, instead of, you know, using this type of mining equipment, you might want to use that type of mining equipment. Are they actually talking on a technical level? Here's the, Here's the methodology or the approach or the testing that you should be using. Sometimes. Sometimes it's about changes to the design process. And sometimes it's about specific examples um, of changes uh, that have concretely been made. 
Um, and we publish uh, success stories that have had some industry feedback that, yes, this really is a best case um, example or best uh a best practice example where a specific change has been put into a project for community benefit. So for example, um, our first success story was how the design process and the design specifications changed for a uh, bus loop. Um, and the loop was still delivered on uh, scope schedule and budget. Um, and how it had a much better impact for the community than a more traditional, um, more limited design would have done. And, and so what was different uh, due to the, the involvement of, of the ECL? I'm sorry, the ELC. Uh, well, in this case, it's, it's um, of course, we aren't involved in every best practice case study that happens. Uh, but we oh, okay. want our community practice to know about every best practice case study that we can find. So we actually okay. um, share stories about cases where we aren't involved, um, just so that we're getting the very best of what happens out there. We're, we're a nonprofit, not a company just putting forward what we do. Um, so we were sharing something that, that a company did with absolutely no involvement from us, but something that was really identified as a best practice that can be, can be implemented elsewhere in industry by community leaders. Okay. So would you say that you are often splitting the ground between like consultation and training? I think trying to affect, trying to affect change. In organizations or trying to provide outside expertise? I think we identify and promote best practices and we enable leaders within okay. companies to make those changes within their companies. Um, but we're definitely not technical consultants coming in. Uh, we're coming in to help people, identify, oh, yeah. we're coming in to identify and promote best practices for social impact. Um, and I, I recognize that technical consultancy has very specific meanings. But what I meant is with respect to organizational and best practices, would you be brought in to, by an organization to make a change or uh, to change the, the norms of the organization or would you be brought in to solve a particular problem the organization is having? We would be brought in to, to change the norms, not to address a specific issue. Yeah. Okay. Definitely capacity building, broad level training, um, definitely not PR when something is going uh, sideways already. Really more at the, at the proactive front end <laughs> capacity building in industry about what is technically possible, what is possible with the business case, um, not, a, not addressing specific crises that uh, an organization or a project might be in. Okay, I didn't get to borrow the military term, strategic as opposed to tactical, you would probably say. Oh, brilliantly worded, yes. Okay. Wow, that was good, Brian. <laughs> I can do that sometimes. All right, so, uh, Pamela, you, you've had some experience then in trying to, you know, work with organizations and work with communities. Uh, if, we, if we go from the, you know, the top-down level and now we look at the bottom-up level, uh, if you're an engineer in an organization and, and you want to enact change, you, you see a change you want to, to have happen, uh, do you have any advice for how one goes about working with, you know, one's, one's manager, one's group, one's organization, 
you know, one's industry to get to the level where you're actually implementing the change that you want to see uh, come about? Absolutely. I think it's so common engineers that we can see a company-wide change that would make that might even be a really straightforward technical design change that would make a huge difference to communities. Mm -hmm. And we're a community of practice that that helps our individual members identify what best practices might be. So how to how to check that against um what others are are doing internationally. Um, and then, of course, the million-dollar question is change management. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I think the, the key, which is a little bit counterintuitive, is listening first. Identify the best practice, identify what you want to do, and then take some time to listen. Understand what your organization's strategic objectives are, understand what the key risks that it's addressing are and how you can write a business case to address those risks to bring in best practices um, and to change at an organizational and systemic level what you're doing to communities. Um, so, you know, of course, there's there's the change curve that's often talked about awareness, desire, knowledge, etc., um, and identifying uh, where people around you and your organization is on the change curve and maybe understanding where you are on the change curve as well um, and and bringing your organization um, through that successfully. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is to many people to not do that alone and to know that there's a whole lot of other professionals out there as well um, who can see the difference for what we can be doing for communities and perhaps what we should be doing for communities and definitely what there's a business case to do for communities and who are changing that paradigm successfully in their projects and in their organizations by moving through the change curve, um, identifying correctly where they are on it and, and moving practices forward to, to best practices, to the cutting edge. Uh, so you had a couple of terms there I want to uh, get a little more uh, specificity about. No, the first one was the change curve. Could you give me an idea exactly what, you know, in your mind, what this curve looks like and what it represents? Sure. It's usually roughly drawn um, as a curve that sort of uh, – moves up more rapidly as it uh, moves moves to the right across an XY axis. And, um, you know, what I, I think it's a really useful framework for understanding that almost no one is willing to change right away. Almost everyone will change eventually as they're brought along this change curve. And, and what we all need at different points in the change process varies. Um, so awareness is the first step. So is your organization aware that um, there is the risk of social license to operate? And are they aware of what best practices are for implementing social impact uh, in their design process and on their projects. Um, do they have, and the next stage would be desire, do they have a desire to 
make those changes? Um, do they have the, the next one is knowledge. Do they have the knowledge of how to make those changes? Do they have a knowledge of how to implement those best practices through policies across their company? Um, mm -hmm. Do they have the ability? So now they have the knowledge of how to do it. Do they have the ability in place to make that change across the company? And once the ability is there, is is our successful um, instances being supported through reinforcement um, that 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 was the right thing to do, and being held as an example for others to make that change? And I think. Um, Often as engineers, it, it seems like a no-brainer. This is a lot better, so we should be doing it that way. Why do we need to have any more discussion? But it turns out we're actually humans, and, and right. all of us need to be moved through this change curve. It's just that, that as a designer, you've often gone through it ahead. You are literally ahead of the curve. Um, and rather than asking to join, for everyone to join you where you are on the curve, you need to bring individuals in an organization through each of those stages. Okay. And, and in your mind, does this curve have any, is this at all similar to, I've seen like the S curve where you've got the, you know, the early adopters and then the middle adopters and then the late adopters, that kind of thing. Is, is, is it a similar type curve or am I, am I completely missing the, the point? I think that it could be the curve that every early adopter went through. So an early adopter had an awareness. Maybe an early adopter had a, t had a tendency to move to desire much more rapidly. Maybe they're just intrinsically interested in desire in that. So they had a desire already. Or, you know, maybe, maybe they heard about something a lot earlier than everyone else did. Um, right. And they've moved up that curve um, from from not being aware of something to reinforcing that it was the right thing to do before everyone else. Okay. <clears throat> it, it sounds similar to also the, the whole, uh, you know, the sort of the marketing sales curve where you do advertising and you're trying to expose uh, customers to a new product and before they'll ever buy it, they have to be aware of it. And then you have to, you know, sound, if I ran down through this, it'd be very similar. If, if you were trying to convince someone to buy a product, they'd have to be aware of it and have a desire for it and have knowledge of it and have the ability to purchase it. And then, you know, finally make the sale. And reinforce it afterwards, probably too. You know, um, yeah. I, I really think of it from a change management perspective. Uh, but perhaps okay. it could be framed for marketing engineering and marketing the social impact best practices within your organization. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there's huge overlaps between them uh, because what you're asking people to do in both cases is is change their habits, change what they do. And in the case of, of social impact, you're trying to make at the end of the day, a change, a systemic change to how industry impacts and supports communities um, for better communities. And in sales, you're, you're trying probably to, to increase profits. Uh, but you might also be trying to sell the idea of energy sustainability or to sell the idea of these best practices being a great idea to include in your organization. Which sort of brings me to the other uh the phrase that you used that I wanted to, to ask about, and that's the business case. So when you're trying to sell something, um, you know, you're trying to put it in terms that, that makes sense to the business. And so do you have any advice for engineers who typically don't have a background in accounting or finance or sales? 
how they phrase their thoughts and their desires and their interest and their knowledge in such a way that it makes sense uh, to to provide a business case. I think the first thing I would suggest is learn from your peers that are doing the very best that there is. So learn from peers at your organization that have tremendous success with business cases within that organization, what they're putting in in their business cases and what's most effective. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, for social license to operate, join a community of practice like the Engineering Leadership Council and learn what are, you know, what are people doing for the best business cases out there. One of the most powerful and, and just numerically straightforward uh, business cases I've seen is when there is a procurement incentive, when a percentage of the evaluation for who the contract is is going to be awarded to is based on something related to social license to operate, that can be quantified into a specific budget um, that could be put into better social license and design and uh, and have the outcome of winning more contracts, not less. I understand what you're saying, but I'm, I'm trying to envision. So how does one go about that? You, you, you know, how does one quantify the economic impact of, of a community going, Hey, well, well, we're happy to have you in our town or we're not happy to have you in our town. For sure. And, and I mean, I think that, uh, just like environmental sustainability, um, it's difficult to say it's worth this many dollars to have a happy community. But um, the the strongest, so it's the absolute value of building a strong community is almost impossible. But a value um, on a specific project, as this will address a project risk or this will address an organization risk and cost this much, is um, a form of quantification that organizations Organizations are very used to dealing with. Okay. It sounds a little bit like actuarial tables and in, uh, insurance. I mean, it's difficult to quantify, you know, the payoff insurance until you need it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what um, what is an organization willing to pay to uh, have a community collaborating and supporting the project going ahead. What is it worth to an organization to have that um, as as a part of the reality around them? And and some of that, I mean, really might be uh, a very hard numbers sort of actuarial business case. And part of it might be that it's an organization, perhaps a municipality um, or something along those lines that simply it, their job is building a better world, is building better communities, and um, this is some of, of how they can achieve that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm trying to uh, think about the ways in which uh, engineers might use this. Your, your passion, obviously, is, is to promote best practices in this area of, of social license. But I'm trying to think if you, we have an engineer that perhaps is, is less worried about a, you know, community activity, but sees, you know, we should use a new technology. You know, we should shift from, uh, uh, well, I remember at one time a company I was working for, they were shifting from, from chemical, 
based uh, uh, medical sensors to electrochemical sensors. And so at some point, somebody had to stand up and say, hey, we've got an entire, we've got an entire manufacturing organization that's using chemical-based uh, devices, and all our manufacturing lines are set up for that. And I propose that we completely scrap that and shift over to electro uh, electrochemical. Uh, it will require new manufacturing equipment, new technology, new innovation. But somebody had to stand up and do that. Are, are there lessons to be learned from, from the types of change that you're trying to affect uh, to what engineers and other areas might be able to do within their organizations? Absolutely. And those are the lessons that we, that we learned out of, you know, both, both our own industry experience and the whole year of leading dialogues and recording, um, across, across Canada, what ex those experiences are, what people had experienced when they stood up, both when they'd succeeded and when they'd failed. And mm -hmm. that's why, um, not only do we identify best practices, um, and communicate those, uh, but also offer, um, and a community that supports, um, change management discussions, change. And I think, uh, keeping in touch with that community and, and confident that what you're proposing is a best practice, that you can have a pure endorsement of that being a best practice, um, and knowledge of, change management and articulating the business case behind you when you step up in that meeting. I think we need to have it so that supporting, you know, a whole change in a procurement supply chain or how designs are done, it shouldn't be doing the right thing, but career damaging. It needs to be doing the right thing and something that will be a tremendous boost to a career. So mm -hmm. being ready to describe how that change will be a huge benefit to the organization and to the community, um, how that paradigm shift is supported, uh, and being ready to, to move an organization through the sort of standard phases of change is critical to succeeding at that, at that really exciting moment when people stand up and say, I'm an engineer, I'm innovative, and there's something we can do better here. There's a better paradigm we can have. Interesting. Yeah, it, it sounds like, you know, the, the key that you keep coming back to, and, and or at least I'm, I'm absorbing here, is that the change management and understanding of change management is really a, a key discipline here. I, I think that's key for all innovation. Okay. So you were co-founder. So what does that mean? It, it, I keep wanting to say when you started this organization, but it sounds like it was a group effort. So how does one how does one become the co-founder of this organization? Uh, well, uh, I went out to brunch with uh, Jody Reckenmacher, who I co-founded the organization with. Right. And uh, we talked about the work we were doing and the work that we wanted to be doing and the huge unleveraged opportunity we were seeing in business for social license and and the support we wish we had as engineers to make these changes on our projects in our work and uh, we expanded the the conversation to include some of the people in industry we knew that had had um, best success 
implementing a social license. And uh, I think out of that, both the experience of having mapped systemic change um, and feeling comfortable uh, leading that mapping process and, um, and seeing how urgently it was needed got us, got us moving forward on it. Okay. And, and so in your role now as CEO of this organization, how does, how does managing a group of volunteers differ from managing employees? You know, managing volunteers is so fantastic. Everyone is absolutely there because they want to be. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have anyone saying like, I'm, I'm here for the paycheck and then I'm going to go home. <laughs> right. Um, so often in the leadership, people talk about, you know, developing a shared vision and developing a team that is a values-based team doing the work and with a not-for-profit, those are, those are kind of defaults that it is a vision-based team and that it is a shared values team. Um, so I think that's tremendously fun just getting this done together and uh, in some ways makes my job a, a lot easier. Of course, the, the challenge is that uh, volunteers, um, I think high capacity volunteers expect and deserve a lot of support so that the time that they do uh, contribute to the organization um, makes a really big, valuable change uh, because their their time is valuable and it needs to make a big, valuable change. So it's it's much higher support than uh, than at least my leadership style is in uh, in a paid environment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, when you're not otherwise occupied, I understand you like to do a a bit of mountaineering. Uh, what was your most recent climb? Anything really interesting? Um, well, I think I did most of my interesting climbs uh, back in 2003. So that's starting to be a few years ago. Um, but I'm uh, planning to go up Mount Baker down in Washington State uh, with a friend this August. Uh, a nice, big, snow-covered volcano. And, and so for those of us that are not real familiar with uh, mountaineering, exactly what kind of climbing are you doing? What does is, what is this involve? Uh, I guess uh, mountaineering is all about getting to the top of a summit, uh, to the top of a mountain. And um, it's uh, a little bit more interesting than hiking. Um, by definition, mountaineering might sort of involve a rope or uh, an ice axe or something um, a little bit more technical. Uh, but it's not necessarily climbing. So you wouldn't typically necessarily see an overhang in a mountaineering trip, but you might. You're just trying to get trying to get to the top of a mountain, and uh, it's usually a fun, challenging puzzle how to get there. Okay, so you're not hanging from your fingertips? <laughs> at, at some point. At some point, you might be hanging from your fingertips, just not all day. Okay. <laughs> and what time of year? Are, are, will, will you be traveling in snow? Uh, the Mount Baker has snow year round. It has ice fields. Okay. Uh, so, uh-huh. Uh-huh. so we're going to go in August where there's uh, a lower risk of avalanches, uh, but a few more crevasses to walk around. <laughs> Best to avoid avalanches. <laughs> That's my strong feelings. I'm not a huge fan of objective risks. I don't want a risk that an avalanche will just come down. So I'm going to avoid that. Well, tell you what, Pamela, we've uh, we've run over our uh, we always run over our hour mark. 
but uh, we've, we've finally gotten to a point here, or we've gotten to a point here. We should probably think about wrapping up this episode and, and uh, letting you go. Do you have any advice for uh, engineers who uh, decide they want to change the world, even if they're not privy to the decisions being made in the boardroom? Um, I think uh, the big thought I can contribute is it's possible to work in line with your values um, and it's possible to help a company work in line with your values. It might not be something you can walk in tomorrow morning to work and have finished by the time you walk out the door that day, but it's entirely possible. The paradigm is changing and there's a need for leaders to change it. And you don't have to be in that boardroom. It might take starting to learn where those decisions are being made and what some of the documents that are driving those decisions are. Um, but I think that absolutely the leadership on what those decisions are and what the technical changes that are going to get there are going to be from engineers and from people designing engineering projects. And do you think that in the uh, – we, we've talked from time to time about the increasing complexity of this world. You know, there's just so many things interacting with so many things that didn't use – you know, that uh, that organizations and systems didn't used to be interacting with. Is there any recognition yes. by those in leadership positions that this complexity requires engineers, you know, those that have some knowledge of the systems in order to help try to diagnose and, and predict what the outcomes might be? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so th there's hope for us engineers. I'm very hopeful. I, um, I've seen so many examples where people have changed what they're building and what it means to people in the communities by, by utilizing their systems thinking and by utilizing the design expertise um, to build a better world. I'm very hopeful for the future of engineering. Fantastic. Well, we like to hear that. <laughs> well, uh, Pamela, if someone is interested in the uh, uh, the Engineering Leadership Council or they uh, want to get a hold of you in particular, is there any contact information that uh, we can direct them to? Absolutely. Go to www.engleadership.org. Or contact me at P. Rogalski. That's P R O G A L S K I at engleadership.org. Fantastic. Well, we will include that information in the show notes. And so anybody that has an interest in, uh, in uh, contacting you directly or, or getting more information about the, uh, the Engineering Leadership Council can certainly do so. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you and to share some of what people are doing to use the, their design expertise to build a better world. Fantastic. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.